Welcome to episode 296 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by NCR's beloved, intrepid, Middle East and North Africa correspondent, Reem Abu-Layl, who comes to us on location from Dubai at the Dubai Duty Free Tournament. Reem, how are you doing? How does it feel to be back at a tennis event? It's uh, it's bizarre. Uh, I, I came yesterday, so I came for quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. It was as sad I thought it, as I thought it would be, to be honest. Hmm. I spent all of Thursday, which is yesterday, all of the quarterfinals day like in the stadium. Uh, and actually, the press room here is, a ta- is, is like overlooking the stadium. So it's kind of like an Indian Oil situation. Mm-hmm. And it just felt strange. It felt strange because when I walked in, they had my name on my chair where I sit every year. Mm-hmm. And then... The room was empty, and I was like, "You don't need to put anyone's names. Like, we're not fighting over seats. There's like three journalists there, <laughs> or like four journalists in total, or something. And we're not allowed to go to the outside courts. But anyway, it was quarterfinal, so all singles were on center court. So I just walked out uh, throughout the day. Every now and then, I would step outside to watch the the matches. But the stadium obviously is so empty, and it's so quiet that. Marton Fuchovic last night in his quarterfinal with Rublev, there was a journalist at the very top pro just having a very quiet conversation with someone next to him. Mm-hmm. And Marton was distracted by that. So yeah. he looked, he glared at him before he served because, and I was like, this is crazy. Top pro, someone's whispering and you can hear him on court. It's just so sad with that stadium. It's so sad seeing it that empty. Like I told you last time, I thought it was going to be sad and it really was. I also, obviously, we have seen a lot of tennis on TV where the stands are empty, right? But when you're there, you really get to see someone like Rublev, who's very expressive, obviously. and, And he goes through all these mental battles with himself during the match and stuff. And and you and you see how frustrated he is and then there's no one around him to draw any sort of energy from yeah you really feel it when you're there i really did feel that it's also very strange because with dubai usually um, because the press conference room is exactly where they walk off as soon as they walk off court Mm -hmm. they barely go into the tunnel and the room is there so usually what they do is they will go immediately straight from the court to the press conference room and usually we run the the routine is the second the match is over we're told to sprint downstairs we're two floors above we sprint downstairs go to the press conference room and obviously we're not doing that so they would finish and you're just logging on zoom from the press conference room which i hadn't done like i'm zooming when i'm home but i've never actually zoomed from a press conference from the press room before so that was kind of weird yeah, it's been a weird experience, I have to say. Yeah, you mentioned something at the, early on in your answer about not being let onto the outer courts, which I know obviously wasn't a factor because you were coming after all the singles matches were already on stadium. But they're doing that, mm-hmm. not quite that, I think, but similar in Miami too, where they're only letting media on, or and, and I think and the public onto like, I think three of the 11, I want to say 11 or 12 total courts. And... Like, I would just feel yeah, like I was missing so much, especially a tournament like Miami, where, you know, where there's 
good player. Well, we'll get to yeah. Miami straw later, where there's usually good players on every court. And but I mean, even with doubles, for me, like I couldn't see doubles yesterday. For if I wanted to, for example, it's bizarre. I do understand why, which we can come to that now. One of the most fascinating parts for me that I wanted to see with my own eyes was how they were handling the bubble situation and how strict it was. It is actually extremely strict. Okay, I was curious to see if it was like just a show or if there were like these loopholes in the system, right? Because this venue is super tricky, the Dubai venue, because you have the stadium uh, and you ha- it's surrounded by bars and restaurants that are open to the public all year round. Like it's a, it's a public place. And then you have a small pond and you cross the pond with this tiny bridge that takes you to the on-site hotel. Okay. And all of this is super connected. And again, that hotel usually has many guests, which I am staying actually in that hotel at the moment, but I was only able to book a room from, from the men's quarterfinals onwards. So apparently before that, I think they didn't have it open to the public, but they do have long-term guests who actually live in the hotel. Mm. Okay. So the way it's been set up is first of all, I am not allowed to walk from the hotel straight to the tennis across the pond and that small bridge. I have to go out in the street and go from outside because I cannot enter the bubble even with my badge. I don't have the credential that would allow me to walk there. They have security everywhere. And there are two elevators that are designated in the hotel to the players and two elevators for everybody else. So I'm never going to be with them in an elevator, for example. They don't even check in to the hotel at the reception desk. They have a completely different area to check in. So it's been done in a quite a clever way for, for and I didn't even imagine that it would have been possible in this venue. And the reason the outside courts are off limits, it's because they are part of the bubble, yeah. because they, se- they separated the venue that way. And maybe my assumption is that Miami is probably the same way, uh, because then they, they have the gym and they have all of these things in the area that's close to the outside courts. And that's why it's closed off to us. Yeah, It's super strict, super, super strict to the extent that like Fabian, for example, from ATP who's handling comms here, like we're waving at each other from afar. Like we're not mixing, you know, mm. because again, she's part of the bubble. So they've been very, very strict. Yeah. I mean, I guess we, we were talking before, I don't know if it was on the show or offline, like what their benefits there would be to being, if it was worth it to go on site or not, but it does sound at least like you've sort of gained a, a better understanding of what it feels like at one of these tournaments now, especially just with the emptiness too. That's something like as a sensory experience that I have not had yet that I sort of would crave, even if it is depressing and empty. Well, you know what? I was thinking about it from the sense of, uh, so I, I had been filing for AFP uh, all of these past few days uh, through women's week and then men's week until the quarterfinals. And then, Friday and Saturday, I was doing radio and we're doing radio not from inside the stadium. We're doing it from like a booth outside next to the pond in that area. And I was like, if I only come down for radio, I will literally not have seen a single live ball when I have the opportunity to see a live ball, you know? Mm. So I was like, no, I'm going to go for the quarterfinals and spend the day there and and, and get the feel of it. Um, so it was more of curiosity and more of also, I just love watching tennis and I had watched it in a year you know yeah but when you're when it's like nearly 11 p.m and and you're watching a battle between rublev and fuchovic and it's that quiet it's really sad like i in a way wow i'm watching some amazing tennis like i got yesterday i watched chapo i I watched rublev like these are players i really enjoy watching right yeah Uh, sinner 
you know, Senor Karatsev, all of that. The, the quality is actually great, uh, barring the error-strewn match between Rublev and Karatsev today. But like yesterday, the matches were great. Um, but you're wondering, again, we've said that so many times, why are they traveling and going to places when yeah. this is this is what they're playing in front of like in front of nobody in these different venues it's um and listen i do understand the conflicts that the, like the players are conflicted from within themselves they're conflicted you know like and i feel the same conflict i love tennis i would i would love to i know it's a huge privilege I mean, I'm one of the very few people in the whole place that I'm allowed to be inside that stadium, and that's not lost on me. There are people who would love to buy a ticket, and they can't, right? There are people who would love to be in there, and they can't. I'm credentialed, and I'm allowed to be there, and I did feel that I was so privileged that I was one of like a handful of people in that stadium yesterday. But it's hard. It's 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 hard. I don't know how you can co- even cover sport that way in a proper way. When I can see, for example, I would have loved to speak to. Misha yesterday, uh, Mikhail Yuzhny, for example, Shapo's coach, yeah. who's obviously had a great influence on him and had a good training block with him in Dubai these past few weeks. I would have loved to sit with Misha, who's already made two finals in Dubai and suddenly Shapo's here for the first time and doing really well. I would have wanted to speak with him, right? I'm, I'm, I, I know we're in the same hotel, but I can't talk to him. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's really frustrating, and that kind of brings me, I think, actually, to a little bit of the person who I want to talk about more from this Dubai field. Aslan Karatsev, who is sort of, to me, and I think a lot of people, whether they're realize this or not, remains a huge mystery man in a lot of ways, who suddenly become very relevant results-wise on tour in 2021. Karatsev is into the final in Dubai, beating Andrei Rublev in the semifinals, breaking Rublev's long, like, 22-23 match win streak at the 500 level, which is my favorite kind of streak. It's very specific. The 500 <laughs> level great. streak for his. <laughs> so, um, but it's also, I think, the only, the main... But it is a testament to Rublev's thing, that, for sure. Uh, and not, not just that. No one else has won a 500 in that streak, whereas, because that was interesting, because in the match notes every day, they're making a big deal of that streak. And then Roger Federer is the only one who has a longer streak at, in the 500 level, and he had a, his was 28 matches. But mm-hmm. when Roger had his streak, there were like 12 other people who won 500s within that time. Whereas with Rublev, he monopolized them. No one else has won a 500 in that period. That's the funny part, I think. Yeah, no, for that. sure. Yeah, it's like, is. those are mine. Like, There's no one else There's not many to go videos. by, but he's hogging them all. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, so Karatsev beats him. Rublev also, interestingly, has a really bad record on tour against fellow against Russians. Russians. Yeah, yeah exactly. like uh, Medvedev yeah. is responsible for most of that, but still. Karatsev no, that's what I was him. saying on radio as well. Like, because yeah. they were like, I was like, I don't know how much you can read into it because Medvedev is responsible for a lot of them. But literally since he beat Eugenie in 2007, he hasn't won a single match against the fellow Russian. 2007? Not that long ago, is it? Uh, sorry, 17. Okay. My okay. bad. I was like, okay, wait, that would have been tiny. Sorry, right. sorry. No, it's it's okay. like 17 or something. Yeah, yeah. There's a seven in the situation, maybe. I don't know. So, so Karatsev, I think I was watching, and I've seen a bunch of people, even during the Australian Open, saying things, commentators and 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 fans and journalists alike, all saying like, "Wow, this guy's like the story of the Australian Open," or "Wow, this guy's the story of the year in 2021." And something about that phrasing of it really just sort of needled me, or did some, or just pushed something in me because I was thinking about it. And I was like what he's doing is shocking 
and really surprising and remarkable, but I don't know what his story is. I really feel like I don't have a great grasp, and I don't think the tennis world at writ large does either from the looking I've done, the listening I've done, has a really good idea of what his narrative is. And this is something that comes up a lot with players who suddenly have a huge upturn in their results, even even previously top players, even when they hit that extra sort of gear, like Vika, when Vika started 2012 undefeated, everyone wanted to know, like, what's the answer? What's the cause for this? What's the cause? When Djokovic started his 2011, you know, undefeated through the French Open semifinals, it was all, wow, what did he do to change it? And he, and he Djokovic had an answer at that time, which was the gluten-free thing, which really became mm-hmm. a sort of calling card. But with mm-hmm. Karatsev, there's no satisfying explanation, I feel like, that I've heard from anybody, including him. I admit, I posted well, this on Twitter. Well, he's not a and... good narrator. He's not a good narrator. Yeah, I was going to say that, but I wanted to read one answer he gave back in an interview in, I think this is in October of last year, when he was already getting some attention from Russian media for, you know, basically going from around 300 to around 115 or so. The question was, this is Google Translate, so it's not perfect, but what did you do before this season differently than all previous ones? What prevented this from happening earlier? And he said, I had different problems. There were no sponsors and injuries began. There was no personal trainer. This prevented me from showing results. And then since last year, I've been working with the coach, uh, Igor Yatsyuk. Uh, We understand each other. He leads me correctly and may not say anything new, but we're working well together. And that's sort of his answer and that's like the deepest answer he's given of all of them that I found. And it's still like, it's, I understand the margins are small in tennis, but to go from someone who is like pretty well parked outside the top 300 for a long time, like he is not new on tour. Um, this is very different than like Lorenzo Musetti, who's also, you know, rising fast at the rankings this week and also made a semifinal in uh, Acapulco now, who's like, who was a junior number one and won a junior slam and was like very much projected and just things are going how they should be. Like, Kratzev was really stalled, kind of dead in the water career-wise. And then all of a sudden, like, cannot lose at this top level. And it seems like he's flown past so many obvious rungs in the ladder on with this meteoric rise. So, yeah, if you want to say the part about him not being very open or or, 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 or revealing and present, that is a big part of it. But also, yeah, there's other things too. But what do you make of Kratzev's run so far this year? He, look, look for me, he caught my eye la- end of last year uh, during the... F- before the French Open, I was looking at uh, people to flag in um, qualies, okay? Yeah. Just who to watch in qualies. So I I looked at the build-up to that, and and he was killing it, right? He had just, like, one Prague challenger and made a final of another Prague challenger and done this and that and started even that year well before the hiatus and all of that. But like you said, like, you, c- I, I'm, I'm watching... I'm looking at his results. I'm picking up on that, but I don't know what the story is behind him. This week, he I realized how he's really not chatty at all. And he, I he says the whole, like the word, I've had problems and things like that, but he never tells you what they were. And also I heard another coach, I'm trying to remember who it is right now, but I think I, I was watching, maybe usually he did a clip with the world feed or something. Anyway, I saw someone think it was usually but maybe not but i saw a coach spoke speak about him and he also said ah oh, he had issues i really don't know what the issues are but there were issues whatever other than injuries maybe there are other things i really don't know what they are but it's very hard to get him to talk like you i think with him maybe you need to sit one-on-one with him and ask a million follow-ups yeah because in press he's not the best narrator for his own story at all at all and this is what sort of makes it sort of a perfect storm 
of <laughs> under coverage in this moment is that you can't sit down with somebody one on one during a pandemic and have a real meaningful like face to face conversation, which you might be more more comfortable. And same same goes with his coach Igor Yatsyuk. I remember people during the Australian Open, I got several messages from different people being like, "Hey, do you have any like context for this guy?" You know, we can't figure out how to find this guy because you can't, you know, go to the player restaurant or what normally do to find a coach. Um, and ATP is not as uh, facilitating with the coach interviews as WTA is. And and also maybe Yasuk is not somebody ATP's ever dealt with before previously because he's new on tour and new on their radars as well. But it's just, yeah, it's sort of, it strikes me as sort of this, the, the Karatsev sort of black hole is definitely a lot of his doing because he's just not giving away very much or opening up at all. And then also it's, I think it's a real testament to how, how much tennis reporting is limited during this, during this time. It, it's definitely limited because uh, in my, I'm trying to think if this was a normal week, I would have watched his practices for yeah. sure. I would have even because he was given a wild card, more than likely they would have brought him to uh, what they, what Dubai usually does is they, they bring at least three or four players to the draw and uh, they invite the media to go and then we we grab these players after to talk so i would have had that chance which is a much more intimate setting than when you're sitting in a press conference you know yeah. and it's like the, he's on a table and we're in front of him no with that you're literally just chatting i would have wanted to do that uh, i would have grabbed his coach go, coming off court at one of the practices in mm-hmm. uh, again in a very casual setting because here it's such an idyllic place like you literally have pond and ducks and 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 turtles and birds and such a nice place here so like it would have been an easy chat i would have even grabbed usually to talk about him you know so yeah. i would have grabbed different people to try and find out more whereas literally all i can do is try and ask him questions and press and and i'm sure it will take him some time maybe to get used to it or maybe this is his personality and you there are people who never give you anything in press and that's fine it's it's their it's their personality but like I, 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 one thing I can compare, for example, I asked him the same question I asked Jessica Pegula when she had uh, her good results in Doha and Dubai after mm-hmm. the Australian Open. And I asked her, backing up a result, a very big result and a breakthrough like you had in the Australian Open is not always something easy, but you've made it look easy. You made semis in Doha, semis in Dubai recorders, I don't remember. And she gave me a great answer. She said, I actually was thinking about that. Like I was worried about backing it up and, and I was mentally thinking about that. And then she gave me this long answer about what it was like going to qualies in Doha after playing on Rod Laver and Australia and all of that, which I've told you about before. I asked the same question to Aslan yesterday. And lit- first he said, I didn't understand your question. So I had to repeat it. And then he gave me like a one line answer. So he just said, I, I treat everything as it's a new thing and that's it. Which is fine. That's a totally valid answer. I'm not saying it's not a valid answer. I'm just saying that he's not a chatty guy. Yeah. So yeah. And now that, like you said, now that our access is limited, it's very difficult to do a deep dive on him. Yeah. All of the normal sort of like detours or end arounds or that we would take to getting because we, you know, there are plenty of players. Like I think of like certainly like early days Dominic team who was an oppressively boring quote. Oftentimes, you know, you could talk to Bresnik, you could talk to other people about Golbus about yeah, team or whoever exactly. else you could you find. Go to Golbus and, yeah, yeah. And, and you could get like really good team color from doing that. But yeah, with with Karatsev, it's uh, it's it's sort of all, there's no roads leading to uh, 
Rome or wherever. His and you know what, Rublev, believe it or not, even Rublev doesn't know him that well. So, like, Rublev no, of course won, he wouldn't. Yeah. He won doubles with him last week, and he was with him on the ATP Cup team. But Rublev was like, I've barely practiced with him. I actually don't know him that well. So that says a lot as well. You can't even yeah. get much from his fellow Russians, right? Yeah, you'd have, to, you'd have to talk to guys who he was sort of poking around challengers with for years who'd really, who'd really know him. And that's something... You know, and those guys haven't necessarily, to the extent they could, haven't come forward with, a lot of them are on Twitter. You know, if they want, especially when he's making his run to the Australian Open, they could have been like, wow, I have this great story about this guy. And, you know, when we were playing, I don't know, Nursultan together or something, and you could, but nothing really come out. So anyway, it's just a weird sort of, uh, yeah, black hole that I would, I would like to fill that void. I just think that it's going to take some time. I think it's sort of a casualty of the, uh, of this age we're living in, uh, frustratingly, but I think it's sort of. Uh, endemic of the pandemic or or emblematic of it at least yeah i wish i could give you any more insights into considering he made the final this week but i'm here and i don't know much more than you do and maybe that's on me but i i feel like i'm my options are limited speaking of russian tennis i want to mention briefly the women's event that's happening this week in st petersburg the wta just i realized on our last couple we haven't talked much about the women it's really interesting or weird sort of draw because i think the last like six or seven once jacqueline christian who was a quarter finalist from romania got eliminated uh it was only russians left out of like six or seven last players and mm. um i think a russian i think tumani had the stat that like russians went 11 and 0 in st petersburg against non-russians which is ridiculous in the main mm. draw and um and, and seven of the court, seven of the eighth quarter finalists were Russian. Seven right? eighth quarter finalists were Russian, exactly. And mm. so, but the other weird thing about it is that it's a premier event at what now WTA five hundred they call it now, and there were no players in the top thirty in the in the main draw, which is nuts for that level of tournament. And there are no Russians, not coincidentally, in the top thirty either of the WTA, which is really kind of surprising for a country that's had such depth at the top of the sport for so long. The highest ranked Russian now is uh, Alexandrova. I think around 34 mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she was the top she's the top seed there mm-hmm. so it's a uh, russian's gonna win that it's gonna be the first russian to win st petersburg that'll be nice maybe it'll be kasakina who's really been surging lately and playing really well it's good to see her back um, but just another mm-hmm. sort of i wanted to throw that in on i don't have much more to say about that i don't know if you do but just on, on russian i think tennis, it's just it's a, ca- a, a casualty yeah. of the schedule it's just the, it's but right now honestly i feel more than ever before makes a huge difference where you're lying on the calendar like what, yeah. which week you're at what's before you what's after you what it's uh, a lot of these players were here in the desert heat and then are going to Miami do you want to go to the cold weather in Russia to play indoors for a week in between that it's not necessarily the smartest option right yeah this sort of gets that goes in let's get to Miami then that sort of leads into that because like so the schedule right now, I think we're really seeing, I think, I wasn't sure, I thought you might go this way with your answer to the last question, but we're really seeing now more than ever, I think in the pandemic, some like real sort of fatigue set in and some real players just deciding it's not worth it repeatedly to sort of soldier through things as we reach month roughly, well, what, the one year mark basically of the pandemic stop, let's just put it that way. More and more players aren't playing the sort of max schedule they might, and other players I think are, are realizing that now it may start scaling back. Now, I mean, Riley Opelka has been super outspoken about all this repeated <laughs> on court and off because he sometimes mutters about it during matches, um, saying that he's like that. You know, so many, how many players are in the red or losing money in any given week, um, mm-hmm. and that's something that that was talked about for a bunch of different tournaments. 
as prize money has fallen, even if it is sort of leveling out, you know, the first round prize money is is not there. And and we see it now that's being cited as a major factor why so many players are withdrawing from Miami, where there was a 60 or so percent decrease in the overall prize money at the tournament. It's a massive decrease, considering especially well, we'll get to Australia later. I think it is a factor. But it's a massive decrease and paired with Indian Wells not being there as a second uh, sort of anchor tournament for this March uh, North America swing that usually exists in, as a sort of tentpole of the calendar, the first two Masters and Premier Mandatory events of the uh, of the year. Um, a lot of players, specifically the men's players, are just saying no thanks to Miami. Uh, Djokovic is out as of today. We're recording this on Friday. Federer's out. Uh, team is out. And those are all notably players. And, and Vavrinka, those are all players who are notably healthy. And Nadal. And skipping this. And, Nadal. and Nadal, Nadal also is out. Maybe some lingering back stuff with him in the background there. But it's the first Masters event since Bear C 2004 that has none of Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer entered in it, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Um, and it's not a small Masters event. Miami, Miami's, you know, it's a yeah, 96 Miami's draw. It, it's it's a yeah. big one. It was, it was for a long time considered the fifth slam uh, back in its sort of NASDAQ 100 sort of peak days. Yeah, this is, uh, it's it's really striking to see this. The women's uh, entry list seems to have held up much better. But uh, what do you mm-hmm. make, what do you make room of this, uh, of this exodus and what, and what it means for the sort of the longer term prospects of the tour? Well, honestly, I, I started asking the players about this because I felt like it's really an important topic and, and kind of I wanted to, to, to gauge how they're feeling about it. So I spoke to Shapovalov about it. He's been very... He's been a great speaker all week, just willing to talk about all of the real issues on tour and stuff. Mm-hmm. And whether you agree with what he's saying or not, like it's just been very open and honest about it. And and I and I asked him, should we uh, should we expect other Miami situations moving forward? And he said, yes. He said the the prize money is much less, and so many people are thinking it's not worth it, especially if you're a big guy who's already done, like one of the big players who's already been there, done that, won a ton of these. Why am I making this trip for for winning? Like even Dubai, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. The winner last year, Novak, won nearly $600,000, okay? Mm -hmm. The winner tomorrow is going to win $150,000. Yeah, that's 25%. Yeah. It's a massive difference. So at the end of the day, Chapo was like, I totally understand and I'm super grateful for the tournaments that they're actually happening. He's he's not scoffing at that at all by any means. But he's like, I'm a young guy, so I am still hungry and I still have to prove myself and I still want to win a, a Masters 1000. And I still want, like, I have a lot to achieve in front of me. It's like, but I'm not surprised that the people who don't have this drive who are thinking, why would I go? And from another side, he also spoke about the bubble element. Why don't I right? put, like in, the bubble why don't I put in his? Uh, from... I'll put in his audio here. How about that? And yeah. we'll and we'll listen to his his answers here. And then yeah, on the other side of that, keep talking. Um, Dennis, obviously, because of the pandemic and everything, the prize money this year at several tournaments is significantly less. I'm wondering how conscious of that are you? And do you think we're going to start seeing a lot of withdrawals from tournaments? Like we've seen some in Miami. Some of them are for different reasons, but some of them also seem like players are saying it's not really worth it to go for a trip like that and pay all that when you're not really making that much money. I'm, I'm wondering for you, how do you see that aspect of, of this season? 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely think there's going to be a lot of, lot of withdrawals and, uh, and a lot of people not, uh, not, not going to tournaments because yeah, like you said, I do agree the, the prize money is low and it's, uh, it's not really in a way it's not motivating to, to play every week and uh, play all the big tournaments just because, you know, there's, there's not really, really a lot in it for us other than, you know, than the slams at this point that, that are, you know, paying just as much or, or better in, in Australia this year, you know, but uh, for sure it's difficult for, you know, for the players, but uh, I mean, we're, we're in this situation, you know, and, uh, and hopefully the ATP or someone can, can do something to, to improve the prize money and, uh, and bring it back to, to what it was. Um, but it is what it is right now, you know, so we have other obligations from, from sponsors, contracts that, you know, that obligate us to play as well. So for sure, that's, uh, that's definitely one reason why, why a lot of players are still playing because otherwise I feel like a lot of players just wouldn't play at all. Um, but yeah, I feel like other sports have been able to, to kind of, find solutions and find ways to, to keep the prize money and, and keep their, you know, their salary. So I feel like there, there are better ways to, you know, to better ways to, to solve this, this problem and, uh, and, and go about, about it um, from, from the ATP side. For you personally, where, what is the biggest source of your motivation at the moment so that you don't focus on this stuff? Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm just playing for just because I enjoy, you know, I enjoy playing the big tournaments, but also I'm finding other ways to, to kind of get, get motivated. You know, I went to, to Doha and, and Dubai this year, which are new tournaments for me. So it's exciting. It's something new. Um, and I'm trying not to actually not to play a lot, just stay out of the bubbles too, because it's, it's very mentally draining. And, uh, and I felt that last year, you know, by the end of it, it was, it was like depressing to, to be out there. So um but yeah there's there's ways that you know that I'm trying to to cope with it and uh for sure I think I think the the reason why I'm playing again are are you know contractual obligations but also I play I'm playing the big tournaments because I do do love to play the big events and I do want to still achieve certain things I want to win big tournaments I want to you know to to go up the rankings but I think uh for for the bigger guys it's not uh it's not really uh motivating you know they they've been they've been there they've won masters they've won slams so it's not uh it's not a reason you know they don't have a reason to to go and play and just the last follow-up i'm sorry so do you think because of everything you just said perhaps there's also an opening to to win more of the bigger tournaments because the usual suspects are not necessarily going to be there the whole time yeah 100 percent. i think uh i think you know there's there's way more guys pulling out than, than there ever was in, in masters. So definitely more chances to, to win. Um, and definitely, yeah, like you said, uh, more, more opportunities for sure. So it's, it's good for, for, I think for, for young guys like me, but, uh, the older guys are guys that, that, you know, have been there and for them, it's not really important. There's no reason for them really to play. Sorry. You, you were mentioned, yeah. Bubble fatigue is what's second part of his answer. Exactly. And, and, and he spoke about the bubble the whole week. Cause I, I asked him at the beginning of the week, like you're coming, you came, went to Doha for the first time, you came to Dubai for the first time. Is that perhaps helping you when you're going somewhere new, even though you are in a bubble, but at least you're breaking the routine a bit. He's like it, precisely that he's like, I took time off of after Australia because honestly, or I needed the break. I was not ready to compete. And then he said, 
I, I'm coming to new tournaments. It does make a big difference. Obviously, he, he said that in Doha, the bubble was great because they had a beach. But they were staying at the Four Seasons at the beach. So at least they can be outdoors. They can swim and stuff like that. And here mm-hmm. in Dubai, it's quite a nice bubble as well. Uh, lots of outdoor areas and stuff like that. Um, but he was like, listen, I'm, I'm young and everything, but I'm going to be very selective with my schedule. If we're going to continue the whole season, moving from one bubble to another, he's like, I, I, it takes a mental toll on you. And, and I don't, I don't want to be struggling the whole time. So again, I, some players are reluctant to say these things because everyone is attacking them saying, oh, you're ungrateful. You're tone deaf. You're this and that. I think we're tone deaf if we're not acknowledging that you can be happy to have a job but also complain about the job we're human you know this, this is exactly the conversation um, we were having in australia when the players were getting all the backlash for yeah. for for complaining or for just sort of bemoaning and complaining i guess it was different players doing different levels of things about you know being in the quarantine or being yeah. in the quarantine being tougher than they expected to be or than they than they thought they were told it was going to be and yeah having empathy like everyone's life right now is is unideal pretty much in the world because of the pandemic. Everyone's been affected by this. Yes, a lot of people have it worse than others, for sure. But the tennis players are not in that different of a, well, they are, well, okay. Compared to us, because I know Courtney and I have talked about this on the show, and I think maybe Reem, you have too. Like our jobs, doing them remotely, most part are not necessarily that much less work per se. But what we lose is all of like the perks right we don't get to sort we don't get to travel we don't get to see new places we don't get to like be with our friends and colleagues and we don't get any of the adrenaline and the thrill of being at a live sporting event and you know mixing with the people who are there you know the stars and the coaches on court and really feeling Mm -hmm. like you're part of the pulse of the thing and to generate all of that yourself and it makes even if the writing process if the output is sort of expected to be more or less the same maybe a little bit less overall but close enough to the same as you were doing before but without all that that added bonus or you know the, the sort of stuff that makes it worthwhile doing this tough job it's tough and i think the players obviously are making it's, way more money than any journalists by the way. but yeah I just want to add that from that sense, we're actually doing tougher hours because a lot of the time oh, we're, we're not covering the time events yeah. that aren't in our time zone. Yeah. So we're actually also like up all night and outrageous hours and all of that. And yeah. and and for the players, listen, it is it, now that I've seen what a bubble looks like and the restrictions and the security everywhere. I mean, Shapo said a very interesting thing when when he's like, I feel like we're in an aquarium. Because literally they are overlooking, like just across the pond, which we're literally talking, this is 10 meters. It's nothing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Across the pond, they can see the Irish village with all the bars, with all the people there watching on the big screen and having a beer and chilling and enjoying themselves. And they're not allowed to even walk through that. And that is a very, again, you think whatever, they're there for tennis. They're not there to be in a bar. But that kind of restriction of not being able to walk one meter to the left, you know, like this is the barrier for you. Doing that week in, week out is bizarre. I'm starting to understand it more. It's a completely not apples to apples comparison, but I've been watching uh, The Crown lately and obviously the Meghan Markle (laughs) interview and stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. even if you are like uh, a super privileged person, who is sort of, you know, royalty of whatever kind of sports royalty or British royalty or whatever, like still having all of these like restrictions and limits and weird, uh, you know, boundaries and and lack of freedom put on you as a human. It's just, it's very stunting and and it's tough to, to have, 
these things put on you there again that's not the best analogy but just thinking of it too because i've been watching these things lately yeah and all of that fatigue i understand you know i think of miami being so huge and then so when i when i see when i see players especially overseas commentators be like well of course they won't go to miami because it's just one tournament you know across an ocean i'm like i guess that makes sense but like wow it's it's miami you know it's still a Mm. big it's still a big event and i guess the other sort of thing i'm wondering um and I don't know if this conversation is, it doesn't really fit with most of my ethos for the sport, but I was wondering it the other day, like, is this, do, do the players, especially let's say like your Djokovic's, your Nadal's, even your Federer's who have won millions and millions of dollars in their career just from Miami, who have, you know, been really been supported by this event. Do they like owe Miami some loyalty in any way in this like tough time to like go help them out, even if it is like for less money? Is that like, that's that's obviously like a very sort of anti-labor kind of argument, but like Miami's going to hurt, be hurt a lot by these players not showing up. And, I think and it's so a very I, interesting there's, there's just, point. There's just no loyalty that I see there. And if I was, if I was Miami or James Blake or IMG, you know, to the extent that IMG has a soul, like I would feel hurt by that, that, the, that there was just it's no, funny because no loyalty. A lot of these players are IMG players as well. Yeah, like, Djokovic is for let's sure. Let's not forget Djokovic is yeah. and Nadal is. And... Yeah. I was thinking about that as well. And even more so for a smaller tournament. I was thinking about Dubai, who actually have a contract with no, a two-year contract with Novak. And his his second his second year should have been this year. So now it's been postponed to next year. Mm-hmm. So he had a two-year deal with Dubai, Federer as well. Now they've sent a proposal to Tony Gotsik because we spoke today to people from Dubai Duty Free and on radio. And they were saying they sent a proposal to Tony Gotsik for next year. Fodger's going to be around or whatever. And this is also a tournament that actually overpays uh, even with the women because they ha- to equalize the prize money between the men and the women, they've always been overpaying the women in terms of the, if it's a premier tournament, not a premier five, they've still been paying as if it's a premier five. They yeah. keep it every year because you know how they alternate every year. But in Dubai, they do not change it because they want to make sure they're giving the men and the women the same amount. So even when there is a gap in the level of the tournament, the status of the tournament, they don't care. They give so they've been overpaying basically for years for both. The, like in general, they, it's it's one of the tournaments where they pay more than they should. And look at what happened to them this week with the men. You know what I mean? Like they 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 don't have Roger. They don't have Novak, who actually has a two year contract with them. They apparently were going to get Rafa, and last minute that didn't happen. And they lost team in the first in his first match to Lloyd Harris. Yeah, and yeah, they, it, it's been rough for them. So I don't know if there should be loyalty or not. But I guess the answer, the short answer, is no. It's well, there isn't loyalty. Happen. I mean, yeah. the question is if there, there should be. Is, is there isn't, but subjective. there should. Yeah. Well, yeah. Should there be loyalty? I am assuming that each one of them probably will have one or two tournaments where they would be more loyal to than usual. For example, Rafa would go out of his way to play at Madrid, for example, you know, or, uh, or Roger would turn up for Hala or something. I don't know. Yeah. You kind of thought Dubai would be that for Roger though. I mean, so I would have thought so, but he also, he has ditched the tournament a few times as well. So I don't know, but I feel like they always have, at least if they don't have Roger, they have Novak. And then this year, and even Andy didn't come this year because he was coming and he pulled out. So 
yeah, it was it was a rough uh, it was a rough week for uh, for the Dubai organizers and Miami. I can't even imagine. I mean, the per- I just keep thinking of the the person who is responsible of keeping track of the cutoffs and who comes in and who comes out. <laughs> and every day, the the someone moves up from qualies and someone is in and qualies. Whoever is responsible for that job is very busy. <laughs> that, that's the weird thing about these draws too. Is that like. Uh, you saw, certainly saw this in the women's qualifying draws in the Middle East, uh, where my girl Akul Amon Moradova got to play twice uh, in singles. Um, like, yes, there is this real dearth of like the ITF level tournaments, the low level tournaments giving opportunities. But then there's all these gaps at the top level tournaments you'd never think would be there, and all these like empty spaces and draws and buys and stuff. Yes, and, but but I, yeah. I'll tell you something. I was speaking to a player who was telling me it's not important who she was, but the planning your travel when you don't know if, if you're going to be an alternate or oh, not yeah, or if you're yeah. going to be next in it's now even harder than usual so it's there was a player who was going to get an opportunity to play dubai but she couldn't so she flew somewhere else and last minute because she didn't know if she was going to be in or not and all of that i think the decision making now is even harder than usual yeah. when when your ranking is not high enough to get you in certain events uh, so unless you're guaranteed a wild card, honestly, most of the times you're probably missing out on opportunities that you don't even know that you would have had. Whatever the opposite of loyalty is, I guess I sort of feel like um, John Isner expressed this is vis vis Miami when he reacted really negatively on Twitter to the uh, the prize money cut in Miami, saying that because there was still TV data sp- and other sponsorship and gambling revenue, that the tournament really probably wasn't hurting that much. Essentially, was what he was implying and. There should be more, and the other thing he says, which is different, there should be more transparency and an audit to see how much you know these tournaments actually have, and if players are getting a fair share or not. I have to believe that Miami is losing incredible amounts of money this year, and especially that, that they got canceled last year. Yeah, and also I the other thing I think, and this goes to Isner, yeah, they got canceled last year, and I'm guessing they'd already had to have had to have built a lot of the site up already because it was really short notice, like a couple of weeks. They yeah. must have lost a lot of money just on infrastructure and advertising and all sorts of stuff they had already sunk into the 2020 tournament that that was not recoupable. I also think, and I think part of Isner's, I'm guessing part of the reason for his bitterness is that Isner skipped Australia, made the decision to be like, hey, which is totally fair, I have no problem with this decision at all. I made the decision to say like, hey, not worth it for me, you know, two young kids and honestly probably not playing that well lately, probably wouldn't have to make that deep a run in Australia um, and already made $20 million in his career just in prize money. Uh, to skip that tournament and just focus on the, you know, American stuff or North American stuff in Acapulco and and Miami. And then Miami real and then Australia pays like super full prize money and plus all these stipends and everything and, and free travel and such. And then the um and then he misses out on that sort of ride and then Miami really pulls a little bit of the rug out from under the players with, with its with its huge uh prize money cuts. I guess, okay, two parts to this question. One or two thoughts I have, and then you can respond to either one, however you want, I'm not sure they're really going to be questions or not. Well, the one question is, is the transparency sort of demand from someone like Isner and more accountability for these prize money cuts, is that rational or is that fair um, to want that? And then the second thing is, did Australia screw up the whole year by giving such an outsized amount of money and, you know, being willing to lose, like, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars, probably close to a hundred million dollars 
I feel like that totally screwed up the calibration for all the players the whole year. Even and they're not and they're not seeing it as here's this great lump sum uh, to sort of keep you going during these thin times. They're seeing it as why is everyone else paying lower now? And I just I just feel like it kind of warped everything. The whole the whole Australia uh, uh, money dump. I think I think you have a point, especially that Chapo did mention Australia uh, mm-hmm. when he's when when he spoke about prize money. I think that with tournaments and with prize money cuts, I I would believe that they probably are being transparent with the ATP because anyway, the ATP has a minimum in general. There's rules, right? If you want, if if you have this sanction, the minimum uh, prize money commitment is X, right? And if that X is not being met, then for sure, I think there needs to be some sort of transparency with the ATP. I don't know how much John Isner would know about any of this right now, but I would be amazed that there aren't honest conversations between tournaments and the tour when it comes to such a massive prize money cut. What do you think? Like, I, 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 would I feel think like so too. And I also think that Isner, you know, longtime friend of, I'll just say it, Gimmelstab, is maybe, you know, having these sort of thoughts that aren't originally his, that he's just sort of voicing these things, you know, the same way that we think that, like, Federer talking about WTA merging and then the doll chiming in. They're sort of talking for other forces in the sports not through their own Twitter handles, not just their own original thoughts. Like Isner has not been the type of person to put like a sort of pre-written, you know, five tweet thread on business of tennis suddenly on his profile. So I, I did sort of look at it a little bit askance that way, aside from whatever points he was making. Just sort of, like, I don't follow him, like so I didn't yeah. see the tweets. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I do agree about the Australian Open thing. I also, I one thing we didn't address is what Shapo said about like how a lot of them, most of them are playing because of their sponsors yeah. and they're obligated by contract from their sponsors to play, which was obviously something that we know, but you don't necessarily think about. Yeah. Uh, and, and which actually makes it even more surprising now that with all these people pulling out, are they just ignoring their sponsors or how is this working out? Because there's so many people who pulled out. You even have like the Monfises and Vavrinkas and like, so many people are not going because I I don't know if you follow that account, the entry list account on Twitter, but literally it shows up on my feed every two minutes with someone pulling out of Miami. Like that's the whole day, all day long. So I just, I just, I just worry about the the long-term viability of this tournament. I know they're still going to have good people. They're still going to have, Obviously, the women. The women are showing up. It's going to be Serena. And the women are strong, and the women and... have... I think it's brilliant what Charleston was able to do as well to add yeah. a second tournament. Uh, and so, that, so I know that a lot of people are actually looking forward to that because after my... First of all, Miami, for the players who have been stuck in bubbles and stuff and are desperate, I've, Miami has a similar vibe to Dubai where, okay, let's spend a few days going to the beach or just being outdoors and, and having a bit of a life before we enter the bubble again, you know? Yeah. And then after that... Charleston is a lovely tournament. The players love going there, having two weeks of tennis there. That was clever. And I don't know why the ATP isn't able to do more of that. Because they are giving these one-off sanctions. There's a tournament in Cagliari, which I didn't know was happening mm. on the ATP calendar instead of Marrakesh or Casablanca or whatever. That tournament moves around. But like big so that's gonna be in Cagliari. Other other point I would make is that the women get paid less overall. They just make less money in the year. So they're, they have less ability to sort of poo-poo pay cuts. They're, they got to show up no matter what, you know, because they're just not making as much overall. And so they're, yeah, but, they're not oh, gonna... Yes, but but I feel like it's... It, they've. I somehow feel that WTA 
has done a very good job with trying to act as fast as possible and trying like they were they managed to get uh, some of Indian Wells prize money for them when Indian Wells was canceled yeah, last was year big. when the men didn't get that and then they were able to get Abu Dhabi they first of all they were able to start their tour before the men's in August right they had Palermo and stuff before mm-hmm. the men were able to start they were able to get Abu Dhabi on the calendar I know the men had Antalya Del Rey uh, but they acted fat, you know, I feel like the women's tour honestly is handling this as best they could. They're doing they're doing quite a good job, whereas the men, I don't know what's going on with the men's tour, to be honest, because having just Miami on its own or just Acapulco and Miami and not trying to figure out a way to to have a, a few men's tournaments before or after. I don't know. Maybe it was difficult to pull off, but the women, I feel, have done a better job in that sense. Well, I also and I, sorry before before yeah. you continue. One thing that today one of the organizers from Dubai Duty Free told us when I asked them about how they were able to handle the bubble and and how they managed to divide the area this way and all of that, and the first thing they said is that we are very lucky that the WTA sent us their protocols very early, well in advance. Hmm. They sent them all their COVID protocols super early, and they they specifically said the women not the men. They said the WTA sent us that and that gave us the perfect guidelines to know what to do and how to prepare. So I feel like they've been really on top of things. Yeah, I think I heard that even as far back as Washington last year. I remember, I think, I believe it's been a while, but I believe Mark Ein said the same thing about the City Open Mm -hmm. last year. So like WTA very early had had sort of their, and this is when the tour was just coming back and they were talking about being one of the first events back, but they already sort of had like, okay, we need this much testing. We need this much sort of boundaries and had already had stuff very lined up. um, And even from the the minuscule level, honestly, it's very evident in Dubai because you have a week of women and then you have a week of men and they're back to back. Right. Mm -hmm. The amount of information you receive on the WhatsApp group as a journalist, first of all, what is the point of the WhatsApp group? The WhatsApp group is trying to mimic your experience of a press center, right? right? When you're in a press center, you enter, there's always these shelves that have match notes printed, order of play printed, draws printed, all of that. Yes, all of these things are accessible now by searching online, but I have to keep searching and going to different links and different, they're not in one place. Especially with the app gone, yeah. Especially with the app gone, but also some tournaments uh, have uh, like um, like a Microsoft SharePoint thing or they have like a, a, a hub where everything is, but not every tournament has that. Okay, Mm -hmm. so now you have to go to all these different places to get that. So the WhatsApp group actually helps you by every day. The WCA communications manager or with the help of local comms would be like they're dropping the the order of play the the second it drops. Because other than that, when are you going to know? Literally, when you're at a tournament, how do you know that the order of play is dropped? Right. Usually someone comes and slams the paper on your desk or someone makes an announcement. Right. They say Mm -hmm. like order of play has been released. You need all of these little things that make your job at least as as similar as it usually is. And then the week of the ATP started and you're you're not getting this information, right? Because it's not part of their protocols. And honestly, they don't care. They assume you're going to keep going to the, you have to go to the ATP website, scroll down, go to the media part, download the daily match notes, and then go somewhere else in the on the ATP website to get the draw and then go somewhere else to get the order of play. They're not even sharing the, the smallest thing. They're not sharing it on the WhatsApp group. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And even things like uh, in, in getting on the WhatsApp groups, like for WTA, you just deal with the same people week in, week out, which the WTA rest makes a big difference, whereas ATP refuses to do that. And they refuse. You, They've been make asked. You, make you apply yeah. for every tournament individually and find new people who are always just getting the hang of it themselves because everyone's new every week and just making life harder in a lot of ways. Yeah. And honestly, I, I, I really want them to know, think of what is the purpose of this? Are you really giving us the same information that we are getting if we are on site because most of the time we're not on site not by choice we're not on site right now because you're not letting us right mm -hmm. the only reason i'm allowed on site in dubai because i'm dubai based they didn't allow international media to come same as doha i didn't go to doha because i wasn't allowed to so the alternative is give me the information and we're not getting it. i know i had diverted somehow but it's just it's very obvious the difference between how prepared i feel wta has been in certain things compared to the men we we're saying all this to be critical of ATP, but also shout out to WTA for doing a grand job here in all this. Yes, uh, Conversely, any other final thoughts for you before I let you go? Thank you for your back to back duty here, uh, being such a like I said, intrepid reporter and correspondent for us from the from the Middle East base as as the tour moves into your your sphere of NCR, uh, your queendom. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, and uh, hope you in, in, enjoyed this uh, final. I'm not sure when this episode will post if it's before or after the final between yeah. Trout Seven Harris, but hope you hope it's what you want it to be. Oh, we have a wild card against a qualifier. I'm stoked. Honestly. <laughs> <It's> wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, good on them for recognizing the cards have got needed a wild card yeah, and should have been card. given a wild card. So that's a good wild card. And Lloyd Harris winning what seven matches in seven days now this week against good players too yeah oh, taking out team and taking out chapo and yeah Nishikori. I mean, and nishikori and karatsev uh third or fourth time in a row now fourth three setter in a row and third match in a row he's come from no he wasn't a set down i guess true but anyway Many three setters in a row, four set, three setters in a row. So, yeah, no, I am excited. I don't really have any final thoughts except that, yeah, um, I don't know when I'm, the only thing I'm thinking right now, I genuinely don't know when I will be at a tournament next and also if I want to be at a tournament next. <laughs> so, like, that's kind of what's been in my mind right now. Do I even try to go to the clay? Do I even try to get into Europe and get a visa and figure things out or just continue this way until things are better? I'm not sure. Well, I'm playing it by ear. These are these are my questions too. When I when I can justify coming back, but I'm I'm happy that you got to go back, even if it was you know underwhelming, disappointing, or hollow, or whatever it was. At least you got something. Hopefully, I can get there too. Uh, and but we've all gotten sort of our own fulfillments through you all listening to us and supporting the show. So thank you for that. And uh, please support Reem as well on her Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/ReemAbuLail. Uh, she's been a, like I said, a, a stellar queen of the Middle East for us. And so if you can show her some love there, uh, linked in our, linked in our Patreon episode, in the, in the episode description on the show, uh, you can find the link there. Uh, so please go support Reem and thank all of you for supporting NCR's Patreon as well. Uh, I want to thank our new backers since the last episode who are Ido Pollock and Tumani Carryall. So thank you to Tumani, uh, been on the show many times, and uh, who's our uh, Spain and Sub-Saharan Africa correspondent, actually. And thank you to our Slam Champ backers. We thank every episode, Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, 
Jean Simeon, James Hindle, Audrey Wellens, Antonio Maycumber, and Anna Valinder, and our GOAT backers, Mike, Nicole Copeland, Chris, Chris Bishop, Pam Shriver, and J.O.D. Uh, Reem, once again, it's been lovely. Hope you have a lovely time, safe trip back home once this is all done. And uh, yeah, jealous you got to watch some live tennis, even if it was from the back row and you had to keep absolute silence so, so as to not disturb Martin Fusevich. Thank you, Benjamin, for having me. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Bye, guys. I love it in the evening, oh na 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 na. I love it every weekend, oh na 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 na. I want it all, every minute. I love it in the 